glad to be with you guys all this morning. It was a privilege also yesterday to lead another retreat for the elders of this church. We were out uh, on the east side of Andover and it was just a great day together learning and um, being reminded of the mission that Christ has given to the church. And I'm excited to open God's Word with you this morning. Brandon asked me to preach on a passage, obviously, that starts out with a command for wives to submit to their husband. My guess is he didn't want to touch that one with a 10-foot pole. You know, it's actually poetic justice because in 2013, when we preached through the book of Ephesians, I asked my predecessor, Mike Andrus, to preach on the same passage for the same reason. So I guess what goes around comes around, right? Actually, Brandon's not afraid of this topic. He's next week teaching in a passage from 1 Peter 3 that really addresses the same thing. But it is true that the topic of submission is not a popular topic in our day and age. And why is it that there is some level of impulse to avoid teaching on this topic? Well, our culture certainly doesn't like the notion of submission. In fact, it doesn't like the notion of authority at all. We want to be autonomous. What that means is we want to be a law into ourselves. We don't want anybody else telling us what to do. That's the way that our culture is set up. But this repulsion of submission is also found in the evangelical church. It's not just something that's out there. It is something that is also found in here. But it shouldn't be this way. As we'll see, authority and submission are entailments of the gospel. And so a fear of the topic of submission is in one way, a way that the church is ashamed of the gospel. But we don't need to be ashamed of the topic of submission. And as we'll see, submission does not equal tyranny. They're not the same thing. Authority does not equal tyranny. Christ submits to His Father. And God the Father is not a tyrant. And authority and submission are bound up in the very way that God has created the universe. The way that He wants to order the church and the way that He wants to structure our families as well. Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 33 shows us that submission within the family or the Christian family is glorious and it reflects the gospel if it's done in God's way. I hope you'll see that when we're finished this morning and I also hope that you'll be motivated therefore to live your lives and your families and in your marriages in a way that does reflect the gospel and therefore bring glory to God. Now, if you're not married this morning, or you maybe even think that you'll never be married, you don't have to check out on this sermon. Did you notice that this passage is not an appendix to the letter written to the Ephesians? It's right there in the middle of this letter written to the Ephesians. This teaching on marriage is intended for the entire church. All Christians should care about what God says about Christian marriage. If you understand what God says about Christian marriage, you can encourage those who are married. You can counsel them or even possibly, as needed, rebuke them. 
At the end of the day, God's reputation is on the line when it comes to marriages in the church. So all of us need to care about what God says about Christian marriage. Well, to show you how glorious this idea of submission that we talked about and sacrifice as we will talk about is in marriage, I want to divide my sermon into three parts this morning. I won't have anything on the screen, but if you're taking notes, here's the three main things. We're going to look at structure, we're going to look at submission, and we're going to look at sacrifice. So um, the first thing we're going to do is look at the structure that this command for wives to submit their husbands to submit to their husbands the structure that it is found in then we're going to look at that command itself for wives to submit to their husbands then we're going to look at the longest part of the passage which has to do with husbands call to love their wives as Christ loved the church and so Brandon you better listen to that part so let's start with the structure The command for wives to submit to their husbands comes in a larger section that begins there in verse 15. So if you'd turn your attention there, verses 15 to 21 of chapter 5. In verse 15, there are two commands. First, to look careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Then in verse 17, there's another pair of commands to not be foolish, but to understand what the will is. Of the Lord is. So do you see how these pairs work? There's kind of a positive and a, a negative. Same thing in verse 18, another pair of commands to not get drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, what is all of this talk of walking in wisdom or not being foolish that is spoken of in verse 15? It refers back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. So if you have your Bibles, Just turn over there to Ephesians 1, verses 7 to 10. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, we learn that we have redemption in in Christ. It's one of these multiple blessings that we have if we are in Christ. And as you keep reading, we see that this redemption reveals something of God's cosmic and wise plan from before the foundations of the earth. A plan for salvation that is referred to as the mystery of His will. And so this plan, this wisdom, this will involve all things in heaven and on earth coming, being united under Christ. God's plan of redemption involves God through Christ putting all things in the entire creation back into its proper place. God's relationship with man must first be reconciled in Christ. This is part of how things in heaven are put back into their proper order. And so the first few verses of chapter 2 lay that out. But our relationships with one another are the way that God puts things in earth back into proper order with one another. And so you begin to see in the second part of chapter 2 this notion of reconciliation that there's no longer Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free nor man nor woman for all of us have equal standing at the foot of the cross and therefore we are called to be reconciled to one another. So things being put back into their proper order God and man in heaven man and man in relationships to one another in the church. 
So the call for wives to submit to their husbands, this command that we see in verse 22, is framed within this entire cosmic redemptive purpose that God has for His people that we would have all things put back into their proper order under Christ. Do you see how big this command is? Then in 5.18, we see that we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does this mean? This is fleshed out in the participles in verses 19-21. to We are called to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are called to sing to the Lord with thanksgiving in our heart. And then we are told in verse 21 that part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit is that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So submitting to one another is part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So often when we think of being filled with the Spirit, we think of this nebulous concept or this emotional feeling, but we are being told that part of what it means concretely is that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then we're given three areas that we are called to submit to one another as Christians. In verse 22, we're given the first one. Those who are full of the Holy Spirit in the church, wives will submit to their husband. Actually, there's no verb there in verse 22. It says in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ, wives to their husbands. We also see in chapter 6, Verse 1, that children are to submit to their parents and then slaves to their master, the household slaves that would have been a part of a lot of these families. So submission in the Christian family in all three of these areas is a way that God is redeeming His people and bringing them back into their intended order under Christ and it's a way that we are filled with the Spirit of God. This is God's will. This is God's wise plan. And this is commanded in God's Word. So, let us not be ashamed of submission. But seek to understand what God means by it. It is an entailment of the glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ. John Calvin, 500 years ago, said this of our passage. We are not to despise the order that God has established among us, but rather to be provoked so much more to do our duty, knowing that if we refuse that condition, we make war against God. We make war against God's plan and against God's Word and against God's Spirit if we are repulsed by God's idea for submission. And in turn, we defame the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the structure of this passage teaches us. And I hope it will heighten your desire to learn what it says. So let's now look at the command for wives to submit to their husbands in verses 22 to 24. But before I dive into this command and tell you what it does mean, I want to say a couple of things about what it doesn't mean. 
First of all, submission does not mean that women are inferior to men. Christ submits to the authority of God the Father, but that doesn't mean that Christ, the Son of God, is inferior to the Father God. Both are fully God. And the Bible repeatedly teaches us from Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation that men and women are both created in the image of God, are equal in value and worth before His eyes. But within the equality that we have in God's eyes, we have been given different roles. And men are called to lead their families. And as Brandon talked about from Genesis, women are called to be the helpers in the marriage relationship. But the role of a helper, as Brandon talked about too, is not an inferior role. God Himself is called a helper in a number of places in Scripture. So women are not inferior to men. If we don't get that right, we will get submission wrong. Second, submission does not mean that all women are to be submissive to all men. This passage does not speak of women in the military or in corporations or in government. We see Deborah in the book of Judges who is clearly exercising authority over at least a section of the nation of Israel. Women are called clearly to submit to their husbands. Children are called to submit to their parents. And all people in the church are called to submit to the elders, which are men. But none of that means that all women are called to submit to all men. Again, if we do not say what God says, and we simply begin to make our own constructions, if we don't understand this, we won't understand what God means by submission. And therefore, this whole thing won't be glorious unto God. If it's just this paternalistic, do what you're told type of... That doesn't bring glory to God, because that's not the way that God created the earth. Third, submission does not mean that husbands have all power. In fact, the New Testament doesn't recognize power relationships. It recognizes leadership and authority, but not power. A husband's power should never be used as an excuse for, I mean, excuse me, his authority should never be used as an excuse for tyranny. Paul never hints that physical or verbal, or emotional abuse are justified in a marriage relationship, or any relationship. The problem is, is that authority has been abused so often, that then therefore we become, we become repulsed by the idea of authority itself. But it was never intended to be that way. Women who are victims of such behavior, I don't care if your husband has authority in the marriage. You should seek help from a counselor, from the elders of this church, in extreme circumstances from the legal authorities as well. God has put other authority structures in place to protect when authority is abused within the home. So we've seen what submission doesn't mean. Let's now consider what submission 
does mean. Hopefully, things have been cleared. We see the motivation and the cosmic significance of it. We are aware of the tendencies to abuse this thing. But now let's look at God's precious picture of what this means. In verse 22, wives are called to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. As we saw in verse 21, we are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord, it means that they will have reverence for their husband. If you want to know what that means, the summary in verse 33 tells us. It's simply respect for their husbands. In verse 23, we're told that the reason that a wife is called to submit to her husband is because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So the husband is the head of the wife. This is a concept that we need to understand. What does this mean? There are all kinds of people in our culture that want to change the plain meaning of this text. It clearly means that the husband has authority within the home. In the same way that Christ is the head of the church. He has authority within the church. The husband is the head of his home and has authority in his home. Now earlier I said that submission doesn't mean that wives are inferior to their husbands and it certainly doesn't mean that their opinions don't matter or that they don't have all kinds of things to contribute to the family. It simply means, in the words of Pastor Rob Green in his little book called Tying the Knot, that God has ordained one person to ride on the front seat of the tandem bike and the other person to ride on the back. The bike will, of course, move fastest when both people are pedaling together. So unison and teamwork should characterize marriage overall. The husband is the head of the wife. This simply means that he's in the front seat. He's the leader of the marriage. That's why women are called to submit to their husbands. But I still haven't told you what submission actually looks like. And so let me suggest two things. It's really more of a principle, but I want to suggest a couple of things to you. First, biblical submission in marriage means that the wife willingly submits to the leadership of her husband. Willingly submits. In the first instance, submission is an attitude that affirms the leadership of the husband. After the fall, we know that there's a tendency, we see this in Genesis 3.10, for the woman's desire to be contrary to her husband's. But as all things are put back into order under Christ, which is what we talked about, it only makes sense that a woman's attitude or desire toward her husband would be in line with God's created order. She should willingly submit to the leadership of her husband, even when he doesn't deserve it. Second, biblical submission in marriage means that the wife obeys her husband. You see why these things are so offensive? They war against our fleshly impulses. In 1 Peter 3.6, we see clearly, and Brandon will talk about this more next week, that obedience was a way that Sarah was submissive to Abraham. Now, let me say a word here. Hopefully, in a healthy marriage, 
most of the time and concerning most things, couples will agree. They will be together as they ride along through life. But that won't always be the case. And in those situations, what should the wife do? Think about the tandem bike again with one in the front and one on the back, a leader and a follower. And this is what Rob Green says. A follower is put to the test when the leader makes a choice different from what the follower desires. If you, as a wife, believe your husband is leading you in an unhelpful way, you may be tempted to quit pedaling, thinking to yourself, fine, if you want to go in that direction, you will do it yourself. Worse, you might be tempted to jump off the bike entirely, refusing to go with him. Being a follower means that unless your husband is directly leading you to sin, you will choose to continue pedaling, even if you would make a different decision. Is that helpful? There has to be an order in Christian marriage, if it is to be according to God's order, in recreation. Therefore, somebody needs to be the leader. And God has prescribed and designed in His creation and in His Word that husbands would lead and that wives would follow. But obeying God's Word and way is not the only reason that wives should submit to their husbands. The primary motivating reason that wives should submit to their husband is because when they do, they reflect something of the gospel that we said earlier. Christ submitted to his father in perfect obedience to the point of death on the cross willingly. And now the church submits to our risen and exalted Savior, Jesus Christ, the head of the church. So when a wife submits to her husband, she reflects these glorious truths of the gospel in her actions and in her attitudes. So we've looked at the structure of this passage and the call for wives to submit to their husbands. Let's now look at the command for husbands to love their wives with a sacrificial love. It's interesting to note that even though the call for wives to submit to their husbands is very controversial in our day, and it comes first. The call for husbands to love their wives is three times as long as the call for wives to submit. Maybe that's because husbands are three times as clueless. But I think there's a little bit of a different reason. Paul wants to make it clear, if I can repeat myself, that even though a wife is called to submit to her husband, a husband is not called to be a tyrant. We are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, wives submit to your husbands and husbands make sure that they do. It totally turns things on us. He gives us a surprise. Wives submit to your husbands and husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do not be harsh with them is what Paul says in Colossians 3. If it's true that a wife's submission should reflect the gospel, it's even more true that a husband's love and sacrifice should reflect the gospel too. A husband is called 
to love His wife as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? We are told right there in verse 25 that He gave Himself for her. He laid down His life on the cross for her. He gave His life that we might have life. Therefore, a Christian husband is called to love his wife in a sacrificial way. Submission is a repulsive idea in our culture. But so is sacrifice. We prefer self-indulgence over sacrifice. In our flesh, we are consumeristic and we are self-interested. So the call to sacrifice is counterintuitive, to say the least. And equally as countercultural as submission is. Think about in our culture how hard it is for us to imagine how people in leadership positions should sacrifice and serve for others. That's not what you do. You have other people serve you if you're in a position of leadership. But that's not the way of gospel-centered marriage. Sure, husbands are the leaders of their homes, but a leader can serve as Luke 22 teaches us. Jesus certainly did. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and yet He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, Mark 10. So it only makes sense that leaders of the home who are following in the way of Christ would also serve and sacrifice. Our love for our wives needs to cost us something, men. We need to be willing to literally die for our wives. To take a bullet for them. And most guys would say, yeah, I'm ready to do that. But are you willing to give your... Are you willing to sacrifice as a living sacrifice? Day in and day out. Willing to live for them in such a way that you must die to yourself? That's not macho. But that's Jesus. In our flesh, we are more focused on ourselves than on others. But if we want to reflect the Gospel in our marriage, husbands, we have to lay down our self-interest for our wives. This calling is enormous. And it should impact the way that you interact with your wife at every turn. How will you act when you come home from work? Will you serve her? Or will you expect her to serve you? John Piper says the husband who plops himself down in front of the TV and orders his wife around like a slave has abandoned the way of Christ. Woe to the husband who thinks his maleness requires of him a domineering demanding attitude toward his wife. If you want to be a Christian husband, you become a servant, not a boss. What about when you want something that she doesn't want? Maybe you want to go hunting or fishing or golfing. Maybe you want to hang out with your buddies. Maybe you want sex. Will biblical love be your default mode? Or will your self-interest rule in those moments? Or what about when she wants something that you don't want? 
Maybe she wants to talk, but you're too tired. Maybe she needs your help around the house, but you just need to check a few more emails. Will you give yourself sacrificially for your wife in these moments, or will you seek your own self-interest? We are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Why did He do it? We're given three reasons in verses 26 to 27, which are really all quite similar. That He might sanctify her, cleanse her. That He might present the church to Himself without spot or wrinkle. And that she might be holy and without blemish. To put it in very simple terms, Christ laid down His life. He died for the church so that we might grow in the grace of the Gospel and ultimately become more like Jesus. So if that's why Christ laid down His life for the church, why should husbands lay down their life for their wives? Verse 29 says that a loving husband who loves his wife, he will nourish and cherish her. This idea of nourishing is very similar to the idea of sanctifying. We should want to see our wives edified. We should want to see them grow become more like Jesus. And why should we want this? We're told in verse 31, because we're one flesh with them. This is not just some, um, you know, some good deed to do to somebody else. This is your wife. She's of one flesh with you. Verse 28 says, she is, we are as one body together. And so we should want the best for them, for when we seek their best, we seek Our own best. What's the saying? Happy wife, happy life. The phrase is often actually used as a justification for letting women call the shots and men not leading. Or them having their way with no qualification. The biblical idea is much richer than that. Happy wife, happy life means that we cultivate and, and cherish our wives in such a way that they grow to become more like Jesus. And because we are of one flesh with Him, when that happens to them, we benefit from that as well. He who loves his wife loves himself, Paul says. That's why, or at least one reason, that we offer sacrificial love for our wives. But how do we do this? How do we love and lead our wives in a way that their sanctification will increase and their purification. The text doesn't give specifics, but if it's to be like Christ, it must involve in some level serving them in a way that it fosters their growth in Christ. And with that in mind, if you'll allow me to read one more quote from John Piper, I love the way he calls husbands to love and lead their families. You should feel Speaking to husbands. The greater responsibility to take the lead in the things of the Spirit. You should lead the family in a life of prayer. In the study of God's Word. And in worship. You should lead out, of, you should lead out in giving the family a vision. Of its meaning and mission. You should take the lead in shaping the moral fabric of the home. And in governing its happy peace. This is how you nourish your wife, and your family. He goes on, I have never met a woman 
who chafes under such Christ-like leadership. But I know of too many wives who are unhappy because their husbands have abdicated their God-ordained leadership and have no moral vision, no spiritual conception of what a family is for, and therefore no desire to lead anyone anywhere. Which one are you? Husbands, you are called to love your wife in a sacrificial and in a sanctifying way. And one reason of this is because it's for your own good. But as I've been saying, there's a much higher reason. In verses 32 to 33, Paul says, this mystery, there's that word again, that's referring back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as his himself. There is, you can't hardly tell what Paul's talking about in these verses. Are you talking about the gospel? Or are you talking about marriage? They are so tightly interwoven in the picture that they express that it's as if they're weaved together in this text. God did not create the union of Christ in the church after the pattern of human marriage. It's just the reverse. He created human marriage on the pattern of Christ's relationship to the church. It was instituted in creation for our good. But it was also from the very beginning, way back then, designed to point to something here of what Christ did 2,000 years ago to save a people for Himself, to die for our sins, to lay down His life for the church. He did this so that we might be saved and set apart as holy for Him. Saved into the body of Christ of which He is the head. Saved in order that we might grow up as Ephesians talks about in chapter 4, that we might grow up in every way into Him who is the head. This is the Gospel, but this is exactly what husbands are called to do in their marriage as well. To lay down our lives so that they might be sanctified and that they might grow up into every way into who Christ is. When we love each other in the way that Christ loved us, we bring glory to God because we reflect what He has done for us. So submission and sacrifice, friends, we don't have to be repulsive to us. We don't have to be ashamed of these truths of the Gospel. We can lean into them humbly and joyfully knowing that when we do, it will be for our good and for the glory of His great name. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the families in this church, the marriages in particular, that You would protect them from the evil one. There are so many things that would seek to trip us up in our marriages. You want to put a wedge between us who have been made one flesh. I pray that that would not happen. But more than that, I pray that You wouldn't just protect marriages from divorce, but that You would help them to grow in such a way that 
they would be blessed and that their children would be blessed and that the church would be blessed and that the gospel would be seen in their marriage. And that people would ask about the hope that they have and why they live in such a way that they do. And when that happens, that they would have chance to bear witness not just in deed, but in word to the mystery of Your will that Christ died for our sins. And so I pray that You would use Your Word as You promised to do to transform Your people, that it would not return void, that this preaching today would affect change in this congregation. That as You have convicted of sin, that You would enable what You require by Your Spirit. And that You would encourage people not to feel guilty, but that the motivation of the Gospel itself would help them to run in the way of righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name.